Hi there, and welcome to Polyamory Uncensored, a podcast where we, your hosts, Lindsay Miller and Katie Williams, interview a poly person each episode, and we try to answer the five points of journalism. Who, what, when, where, and why, as it pertains to our poly lives. You're listening to episode 39, where we chat with Teresa. Stay tuned as we delve into the good, the bad, the ugly, and the just plain complicated truths about our poly lives. So, Teresa, who are you? So, my name is Teresa Motman. I am a physician at the Medical College of Wisconsin. And how do you identify? Um, I guess I've always kind of struggled with, like, just picking words to identify with. I guess I would say I am a cisgendered female who identifies as bisexual, but I never really liked kind of putting labels on myself. Sure. Um... What drew you to polyamory? Um, I always felt that I never really had just one person that I cared, for, like that I truly loved. I didn't really ever believe in the concept of soulmates. Um, I remember back when, you know, I was in growing up um, reading books and, you know, the character would have like two different love interests. And I was kind of like, why can't they just be with both? Why do, you know, why do they have why to choose? Why does the triangle have to be the point of conflict in this story? Yes. Um, and I guess it's, it was kind of like a slow evolution over time. And just to like kind of, I, I knew in my mind that I just, I didn't, wouldn't love just one single person. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think it was maybe about like six months ago that my, uh, one of my partners introduced me to the, just the concept of polyamory, and I was like, "Oh, well, that makes sense," because I've oh, been yeah. feeling that for a long time. Right. Oh, look, there's words that say what I've been thinking. Yep, that's always a great moment. So, what does polyamory mean to you? I have always been very um, kind of attracted to people that I'm very close with. So, like, I found that you know, over the years, I'd have some of my best friends. I would kind of almost develop like a crush-like relationship on them. Um, and so just being able to have those deeper relationships um, and not necessarily say that I can only be kind of close with one person. Do you find anything difficult about polyamory? A um, little bit the uh, trying to explain it to people. Uh, I don't exactly you know, tell a lot of people unless I mean, if they ask me, I would tell them, but if people don't ask, I don't necessarily say, oh, by the way. Right, right. Mm-hmm. It doesn't come up organically. No. It's sort of weird to make an announcement. Yes. So there was, was there like an exact time in which you knew you were polyamorous? Several years ago, um, I knew that I ha- like cared about multiple people. And um, that was so, but again, I didn't have a word to really define mm-hmm. it at that time. So I did notice um, you used your full name when you introduced yourself, and so you're. It sounds like you're out fairly generally, although not necessarily explicitly to, you know, with the announcements. Yes, um, I don't really have much of a concern about, you know, um, people knowing. It's more of just I haven't really told really told people. Um, it's just not really been a, a big concern, but that's great. It's kind of if it if it comes up, you know. There's a few people that I'm close to have told, but if it comes up, I'll tell them. But if not, I'm just not going to necessarily say anything. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Um, so, where would you say you are in your poly journey? 
Oh, that's a hard question to <laughs> answer. I don't, I don't know that I have a really good way to define that. Mm-hmm. I don't. I guess it doesn't really feel like a journey so much for me. It's just who I am as a person. Okay, yeah. sure. Do you have like uh, goals for the future when it comes to like our our next question is always where do you hope to go in your journey? But if it's not necessarily a journey, it's just your identity. Do you still have like relationship goals or expectations when it comes to like being polyamorous? I'd like to have, you know, people that I can be close with. Um, I like the having multiple partners because I can get different things from each partner. So, you know, if I have I have one partner that, you know, if I, I need stuff done, that's the person I talk to. I have another partner if I want to like cognitively work through things, I go to them. <laughs> and I have another partner if I just want someone to listen and not necessarily weigh in or, or provide any information, I can talk to them. So I kind of have can have different needs met and um having multiple partners really takes a lot of the stress out of the relationship of trying to be everything that the other person needs when you're in a monogamous relationship that sort of thing yeah that makes a lot of sense so why would you say that you're poly guess it's the best way i can define the fact that i you know have close kind of intimate relationships with multiple people um and that's not always necessarily a sexual relationship, but, you know, uh, and for lack of a, a different word to define it, I guess that would be the, the best way to define that. That makes sense. Uh, and um, Katie and I had, uh, I don't know that I would say cornered you at the one of the polysocials, <laughs> but we were definitely in a conversation with you. I think one of your you. partners helped us corner yes. you. <laughs> yes. And uh, you started talking about what we were going to talk about today as our topic, I think, and we were like, can you be on the podcast? You know, but uh, our, our last question is always, why did you agree to be interviewed? Uh, because sometimes and there's actually, um, it's kind of 50-50 of people being like, no, I, I could never. Uh, I don't want to be on the podcast. I don't want my voice out there in the world. Or I don't feel like I have anything to offer, whatever the case may be. But um, but you were like, yes, that would be great. Uh, so why did you agree to be interviewed? Um, I admittedly am very nervous about doing the interview here today. <laughs> but... I felt that being a medical professional, I can help share, you know, kind of the medical perspective for people so they can understand, you know, that side as they're trying to navigate our healthcare system, which can sometimes be very, very difficult for minority populations. Um, so um, my nurse practitioner has been working in the Freighter's Inclusion Clinic which is their specific um, LGBT clinic. Specifically, they focus on transgendered individuals, and they have like ways for helping them transition, that sort of thing. And um, so I've, I've had just had, like, over the last couple of months as she's been doing that, I've been having a lot of exposure to kind of discussing some of these topics. I spend a lot of time just kind of going over them with her and you know we we often are bouncing ideas off of each other and discussing them so I felt like this is something I feel pretty comfortable talking about mm-hmm. admittedly I still have lots to learn about it but um, I felt like that was something I could offer cool well thank you we yeah. appreciate your mm-hmm. agreeing to be interviewed all right we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back and we are back. Uh, today, our topic with Teresa is going to be speaking to your healthcare provider, specifically as a poly or a queer person. So 
what is um, important to keep in mind, especially as like someone on the in a fringe community when speaking to your healthcare provider? Sure. I think one of the most important things is to be upfront and open with your physician or healthcare provider. Um, if you tell them right up front, it will often help prevent any further issues down the line where there might be miscommunication or kind of feelings of they don't understand me. So, for example, I went and saw a provider recently and I walked in and I said, by the way, I'm polyamorous. This is just who I am. And if this is going to be a problem, then, you know, I'll go find another provider. And that allowed the doctor kind of either ask questions or uh, get some more clarification if they need to or say that, you know, if this is something they truly don't understand or are uncomfortable with, they could at least be upfront about that. I think same way in like with a lot of, you know, the idea of polyamorous relationships were very much open and honest about things with our partners. Same similar kind of thing with our, our healthcare providers that we should be, you know, open and honest with them. Uh, do do you know if a lot of healthcare providers get trained when it comes to um, even just knowing what poly polyamory is or about queer identities? Like, is that something that people have to, uh, doctors have to do on their own? Or is that something that... So it is something that is increasing. So I know at our medical school, they are now starting to add more of these kind of educational opportunities in becoming more identified as a, a, a thing that we need to be thinking about and considering for our patients. We, I, I've never seen any training about polyamory specifically. Uh, I think a lot of that kind of just goes back to your basic, you know, uh, teaching with like sexually transmitted infections, that sort of thing. And we can talk about that a little bit more when we get to that part of it. Uh, but the there is not a lot of training, but it is something that is changing, and yes. it will be. We will be seeing that moving a lot further, and we're starting to. Uh, I'm starting to see changes in some of the questions that we ask people. Yes. So, and I think from my standpoint, also learning what questions I, sh- I should be changing to ask people to make them feel inclusive. So, you know, I used to ask questions like, are you sexually active with male or female partners? Now I'm trying to ask more, what gender are your partners? Or mm-hmm. just the more generic, who are you sexually active with? Which mm-hmm. allows people to be more open and just kind of leave it out there for them to provide me what they want. Yeah. Right, and it signals, too, that you aren't boxing in an answer. Correct. And I think we also get a little bit away from in the medical community putting identifiers on people. So uh, we don't, you know, we, we we can document in there if somebody identifies as, you know, a, a lesbian, gay, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. But ultimately, a lot of medical practice goes down to what do people actually do? So that's why we have terms yeah. like men who have sex with men, you know, women who have sex with men women have Mm -hmm. sex with women, that sort of thing. So we can more just categorize people by behaviors as opposed to kind of put people into a box. Right. Because you could be a man who has, or you could be a gay man who doesn't have sex, right? Like, so you wouldn't necessarily be at a higher risk. And a lot of that came around because there were many men who would have sex with male partners, but did not identify as being gay. Yes, yeah, And so trying to so we never want to make assumptions about people's identities Mm -hmm. and so that oftentimes just leads to us asking a lot of questions uh you know we will oftentimes ask you know what do you what do you identify as as, uh, so that people can tell us Mm -hmm. i'll tell you my nurse practitioner who works in our um, inclusion clinic she often says she'll get 
terms from people and she's like, I'm, I'm not even sure what that one means. There's just sure. new terms coming out all the time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it does require, you know, kind of sometimes asking people to clarify what those mean because, you know, as, as things change, it's it's a little hard sometimes to keep up with it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we do want to make sure that we, we keep people feeling, you know, included and welcome. I think, you know, the medical community as a whole, you know, tries to make sure that we, we can provide judgment-free care for people. So, you know, physicians will often ask a lot of questions, and it's not because they're trying to pass judgment on people, but they're just trying to make sure that they can give people the right kind of counseling and guidance to optimize their health. And sometimes I think that can feel a little bit intrusive for people when we ask a lot of questions. I I definitely think, like, this is an area where I I believe that more about doctors who practice outside of mental health care than mental health care practitioners. I feel like that's still an area where there is much, there's a lot of judgment or a lot of inexperience that can end up really feeling like it interferes with people's relationship with their provider. Like there's definitely a who knows who poly friendly or kink friendly or what have you friendly Mm -hmm. uh, providers are. And I think that there's similar levels of concern from people looking for healthcare providers in our community. Um, But I don't think we've got as well established of a way of saying, no, no, these people really are, you know, it's really okay. And it'd be nice to try to help figure out how to develop both what kinds of questions should we be asking of our healthcare providers? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then also like, how do we kind of help make sure that, people are getting the message that actually healthcare providers are trying to do better. And there's an opportunity to, you know, let people know like, Hey, actually, would you mind, you know, not boxing me in with men or, you know, I have sex with men or I have sex with women. And like, I am, you know, non-binary or my partner, one of my partners is Mm non-binary or, you know, whatever, like trying to figure out how to both ask those questions as a patient and then also develop that level of communication. Yeah, it definitely can be hard to have those conversations, but I do think having some of those up front can make it a lot easier so that way you don't develop that relationship and then kind of things change down the line and suddenly you feel like maybe there's some betrayal going on or you know feel uncomfortable because you know they find out something and they didn't didn't realize it before. Um, right. Or they have some kind of reaction yeah. and you see it, but you don't necessarily know what it means. You just know like, oh, oh, I did not like that face. Exactly. Is it a, were they surprised because they just didn't realize it? Or is it more of a surprise because they're, you know, offended? Right. You just don't or, know. Yeah, exactly. When I was pregnant for the first time, I, I, so I was in a partnership with another woman and mm-hmm. my Uh, I got pregnant through the magic of reproductive endocrinologists. And when they kicked me out of the practice and said, no, now you have to go find an OB to help you get the baby back out. um, (laughs) The first practice that I interviewed with um, in the first appointment, I got a sort of a, that facial reaction when I said, you know, no, there is no dad. I, you know, used, uh, you know, I got pregnant at this reproductive endocrinology practice mm-hmm. locally, and you know, my partner is a woman, and I I'd been recommended to the practice by a lesbian couple. Like I tried to mm-hmm. do that sort of like 
sifting and winnowing that we were kind of talking about earlier. But still the reaction in her face, I was like, I'm not going back there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah. I don't know why you're reacting this way, but it makes me too uncomfortable. Sure. And I don't want to, I'm not here to be your educational experience. Mm-hmm. You know, in, some days it, I feel like being that, but not all the time. And I think that's completely understandable. You know, some people want, you know, somebody who knows everything about it. And others are saying, you know what, I'm okay if you don't know everything. I'm willing to kind of walk through this journey with you. So I don't think either opinion is wrong for patients. Mm -hmm. I think Mm -hmm. the most important thing is to just be honest with your providers. So my goal as a physician is to, you know, know the guidelines, the recommendations, and make recommendations to people on how to optimize their health. Now, I treat adults, so Mm -hmm. that means everyone's 18 and older. That means they are allowed to basically do what they want. They, they, you know, we we talk about, you know, people can make bad decisions for their life if that's what they want to do, and, you know, we're okay with it. So it's never been my place to judge people. I'll have, you know, patients who uh, might have, you know, serious substance abuse problems, and I tell them, like, I... It's not my place to judge you. It's not my place to be angry at you. All I want you to do is be honest with me so that I can actually help you. And so I think the same thing goes with, you know, kind of any sort of lifestyles. Being honest with your doctor can help them provide you better care. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. I've also found that sometimes those questions that might be seem intrusive can sometimes feel comforting because I know that it's then on their mind. Like the place that I get tested at, they have kind of a little intake form and it has, you know, what are your pronouns? And they have options and they, them and other is an option. And I was like, well, that's awesome. That actually makes me feel really good. And then when we talked, um, when I was talking to the person who was doing my STI like screening, they asked, you know, like, I think they might have even used the term polyamorous. You know, are you polyamorous? Do you have multiple partners? Are you bisexual? There were all these things that this, I mean, outwardly looking little old lady <laughs> like mm-hmm. was asking me these questions and not even blinking about it. Not she, she was just like, okay, cool. Yep, that's good. And I felt really comforted that she, it was not even, there was no judgment, but it was purely just, I'm just doing this to, um, to gather information and I could not give a shit. <laughs> but there was also like uh and I see you. Yep, I see you and I recognize that these exist, that your identity is real and valid and and I just want to know this is yeah. this is who you are yeah. and right. you know there I'm are not so- making any assumptions. Correct. Mm-hmm. And there are there are certain behaviors that increase your risk of certain diseases and we are asking about those so that we can you know, identify if you're at higher risk and either screen you or put you on medications to prevent, mm-hmm. you know, those kind of things and or counsel somebody for, on how to practice safer sex, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Um, so that's well, why that, a lot of those questions get asked. Well, I think that's really the important thing because I've also had the experience in other healthcare like I went to a Planned Parenthood in the region looking for STI testing and I didn't have a specific concern, but it had been a while and I had had multiple partners and I thought, I just want to get checked for everything. And they basically said, no, you're a middle-aged white woman and you haven't had that many partners. You're not at high enough risk for us. Like, don't even take your clothes off. Like, what? (laughs) And I get, 
their profile, I didn't turn up as being sufficiently high risk, but it also really felt like, boy, you are making a lot of assumptions that may not be accurate. That's, right. <laughs> That's true. I think the most important thing as healthcare providers is we're not supposed to assume. We're all human. Doesn't mean we don't make mistakes and everything, but really try not to make assumptions about our patients and just let them tell us, you know, who they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I think that's the most important thing is knowing that we we are we try not to be judgmental we try not to assume but once again we're all human so mm-hmm. we can't we can't be perfect every time with every oh, patient no, for and, sure you for know sure. one of my life mottos is like you don't know until you know like people mm-hmm. don't if they don't know what polyamory is they won't know until they know so like you can either you know and it's not any of our jobs to train people what polyamory is or educate them but. You can, you know, do one of two things is is not go back to that healthcare provider or maybe be like, hey, you should probably Google right. <laughs> polyamory sometime or well, something. Well, and I think know? it's important to understand that in the moment, you know, people are going to make the decision that makes sense to them yeah. now. And some days you might have the space to be like, okay, well, actually, let's have a conversation about this. And mm-hmm. other times you feel like... Uh, I don't have any more spoons. <laughs> I just want to get tested. Okay, thanks. Yeah. Bye. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, th- I think that is very true. And, you know, being on the opposite side, there are, there are days where I'm like, I want to hear everything. And the other days when I'm like, I just, I'm, you know, it's been a long day and I just don't have the capacity today. And so I, I very much understand that like some days you're, you're, you're very open and able to give a lot and other days it's just harder. And I think, I think that's just very human mm-hmm. for everybody to do that sort of thing. Um, I do think one thing that's really important and that I think is also not consistently done probably anywhere in the world um, is um, the intake screening, trying to be inclusive in that same way. Um, I've had multiple conversations that I have escalated where like the intake person has um, questioned like my authority to get health care for my child because I have said, you know, like, are you the mom? Well, I'm one of the moms. Like, oh, okay, screening, you know, screaming halt. Like, wait a minute. Now I need your birth certificate. Like, you don't need what? my birth certificate. <laughs> Can I talk to your supervisor? <laughs> you know, and I actually had somebody and I'm not going to name the, the clinic in town. Um, but I had a person tell me that they were not going to let the doctor know that I was there for my appointment or for my child's appointment if I didn't give them this information that they had no right to be asking me for. And they didn't know that I actually have a very close personal relationship with this healthcare provider. And I was like, okay, I'll tell her I'm here. <laughs> let me plot my phone and text her. Would that be better? <laughs> yeah, that can, that can definitely be a challenge. And you know, with that, you kind of have people at different levels of training who Mm, might have different knowledge about it. Uh, Absolutely. And I just think that's something that, you know, I get there's, there's obviously a lot of training that those people have to go through because Mm -hmm. there are, you know, insurance related questions. And if you have a population that has a large number of foster children, for example, you do need to know that the person who's bringing them in has the authority to provide their care. But then the question isn't, are you the mom? The question is, are you authorized to get care for this child? And if they had asked the question to me that way, I would have been like, yep, yeah, sure. Here's my insurance card. (laughs) Um, mm -hmm. One of of the challenges I think that comes up is that 
when we try to be, you know, be more open with that questioning, it can make the questions be very tedious because, mm-hmm. you know, instead of just saying, are you a parent? You know, now you'd say, now are you somebody who has legal authority to make right. decisions? Well, and if they would have said parent, that also would have been fine because yep. I wouldn't have felt the need to say I'm one of the moms because I feel a moral obligation to be out in those kinds of circumstances because I can and also because having been the gestational uh, parent and the um, genetic parent, I know that who's the real mom is kind of loaded and I would rather try to take that on than leave that burden only on the parent who was not the genetic or gestational parent. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's a level in which maybe I'm picking the fight a little bit, <laughs> but, or, you know, look like if the opportunity is there for me to take that burden on, I kind of do. But I think it also does point to, oh boy, it'd be great if we could figure out ways to just help people naturally learn some inclusive language. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I know our clinic recently kind of revised its whole intake form to make sure that those forms were had much more inclusive language. So now there's a lot of like, you know, other categories where people can self-define mm-hmm. so that way they don't have to feel like they are being boxed into one of those areas that they don't feel like is appropriate for them. I found when I was pregnant that there were um, a lot of of forms that were very binary obviously they always said mother they always said woman whatever um and i have a friend who's a midwife who's actually specifically um and who kind of like specifically became a midwife to be more inclusive and and say things like parent when it comes to you know you don't have to be a woman to have a baby there are trans people exist you know and that um and instead of breastfeeding chest feeding or or certain words like that that i would never even think of and even when i was pregnant probably never noticed you know um and and but that it like means a lot to a lot of people and 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 we can you know kind of just as either as cis folks or or straight folks or something we can just kind of glide by and never notice these kind of to some people glaring inaccuracies i think i think that's kind of the uh, the definition of that privilege that you don't have to pay attention to that um, I think really the kind of the big takeaway for people would be just knowing that, you know, their provider might have a lot more questions. And a lot of times that's not because of any sort of judgments. It's just that they're trying to understand. It'd be no different than if a patient comes to my clinic and they have a certain healthcare disease that I have never really treated before. Mm-hmm. I would have a lot of questions for them because often they know more about that than I do. And so, you know, I'll read up on it, you know, once we've talked about it. But it, a lot of times I need them to kind of start, you know, showing me the, the what's important to them. Yeah. That makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. So another thing that I kind of wanted to bring up was um, regarding not necessarily poly folks, but kinky folks, because oftentimes... They have to be really careful with healthcare providers because some of the things that kinky folks can engage in can actually be uh, harmful, I guess, or or um, not harmful. I mean, maybe maybe, but that seems harsh. Uh, but could hurt them, right? Could leave marks. Could mm-hmm. and consensually could potentially but, lead to a "Are you a mandatory reporter?" kind right, of question. Right. 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 Um, is there any? training or 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 talk going on about like 
the difference between consensual kink and abuse? Not, I mean, there's not a lot of training. I've I've had very minimal training on managing abuse patients, despite the fact that we know, you know, adverse childhood events, abuse, those kind of things all affect people's both physical and mental health. Um, specifically, any sort of like king training, I, I've not had any training on that. Um, you know, thankfully, I work in a, a 18 and older population, so... Mm-hmm. You know, these are all people who can consent. Now, there are maybe some individuals who are not, do not have maybe the mental capacity to consent, and that might be a, a different matter. Sure. Um, you know, some of some older individuals, some people who have, um, like, learning d- disabilities, that sort of thing. So that has not been something I've encountered is, is too much of an issue, but I... I work in a primary care clinic, so that's probably a very narrow, have a very narrow spectrum of that. Mm. Um, but I, I could see how that could definitely be a problem for people. We try to screen people for things like abuse. And so, you know, if somebody has marks on them, they might find themselves getting more questions about, you know, are you in a safe environment? Is anyone, you know, hurting you? That sort of thing. Um so they that which I could see might be kind of make them feel uncomfortable if they feel like they're getting that question a lot. Uh, it's always a fine balance of like how many people do we screen who maybe don't have it versus do we miss people who you know are in an abusive relationship yeah. and then don't catch it. So right. it's, what it, would you recommend for somebody who maybe is in a consensual a kinky relationship where they have you know they're consenting to things but they might show up with you know cane marks on their butt or whatever yeah i think i think very much letting your providers know they say like look this is this is you know what i do and this is all in the setting of me being a consensual adult in a you know consenting relationship and um that way if they see anything concerning they at least can you know if they if they feel like they need to ask about it they can say you know is this something that we should be concerned about Mm -hmm. or or they can just say like, oh, I know that this, these are not things that you want me to be worried about. So again, I think that communication with your provider becomes the most important key. Yeah, I think it can be uncomfortable or awkward at times, obviously. But I mean, what isn't uncomfortable or awkward when it comes to talking to a healthcare provider? Like it's all personal. <laughs> like it it's can, true. it's so personal. So and yeah. and and it it's sometimes very it can feel very awkward on our end too yeah, I so bet. I bet. uh we try to we try to feel as comfortable as we want i think i think it just goes back to our whole like culture of like we we don't talk about these things right and so everybody just kind of has this idea of we shouldn't talk about it and as a result uh people don't feel comfortable even telling the people who need to know right well we do i mean sort of set up our healthcare experiences as very much like you know, you go in to have your annual exam and there's a sheet placed over you and you can't see the doctor's head while they're poking around in your, you know, vulva and up your behind. And you're like, you know, I mean, it's all set up in this super artificial, weird way that definitely does not encourage comfortable communication. <laughs> I absolutely agree. Actually, when I when I do my pelvic exams, I make sure that, you know, I, I, I try to keep the knees still covered, but then I pull the sheet up and I have kind of people sitting up so that they can watch me while I'm doing the exam. So that I, and then, you know, if I look up, I can look right into their face and they can, you know, that way if they have questions, I can explain exactly what I'm doing to them. 
uh, so they they don't feel like they can't see what's going on down there because I do think people you know kind of deserve to know about their body their health mm-hmm. you know their information I think something um, that actually people at my work will say often and I'll kind of repeat to myself when going through exams or whatever is is when people ask personal questions, not personal of me, but like a person of a personal nature at work, they'll say, I know you've heard everything, right? You've heard, you've seen this all before. You've heard this all before. And sometimes when I'm at like a, a doctor's office, I'll be like, they've literally seen and heard everything. Like, I don't have to worry about this. I'm not new. I'm not unique. Like they've seen everything. And so that's something that is kind of a, a comfort to me that like, eh, this is all this is all every day to them. This is getting coffee. This is whatever. (laughs) I have a funny story related to that, actually, which was um, years ago when I was living in Madison, I had a roommate who was, uh, she was paid to be one of the people who medical, who medical students do pelvic exams on. Standardized patient, yeah. And she was a big hairy lesbian. And she was like, I am so happy to be like this person because now like, you know, other they're they're never going to be uncomfortable with this at this level again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Actually, awesome. when I was going through my my training in medical school, the the women that would train the pay, uh, students on how to do the pelvic exams, they a lot of them are very proud of what they do. Like, and they were like, they'll be the ones to be like, okay, no, you're not doing it right. This is how you do it. Wow, they, it was very important to them. Uh, to be able to do that and show people how to do it right. So there are people, it's very important too. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it's great to, you know, that they have those attitudes and that they, and that they hire people to Mm -hmm. do those jobs who are like, oh no, you're going to learn how to do this right. Don't poke like that. That hurts. Totally. (laughs) I just feel like what a noble sacrifice. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it was not all heroes wear capes. Okay. I I know, you know that your health is excellent because it's being checked like twice a week for the year, but Mm -hmm. at the same time, like, Oh my God, that would get old so fast. (laughs) I hope they get paid well. That's (laughs) I think, I think like any teaching, there's a certain reward to be able to teach people. That's very fair. Yeah. Uh, Well, on the subject of like, just healthcare providers in general, do you have a message to other providers on like how they could be or do better? So I think learning how to ask, just ask more inclusive questions, I think is the, probably one of the first things that we can do. Um, even if you don't necessarily know a lot of stuff, just being able to ask the questions in a you know, manner that doesn't feel judgmental to people, that doesn't leave people feeling like they can't, you know, or that they they can't share this information or that they, you know, are feeling boxed in in a way that they they don't identify with, that sort of thing, I think is probably one of the very first things providers can do. Um, You know, clinics as a whole have been working on trying to, you know, be more welcoming by having, you know, forget the exact term, the bathroom's gender inclusive yeah gender inclusive bathrooms um you know i I know over by our inclusion clinic they they have a picture with a pride flag hanging up in it so just trying to show that like we look we are open and accepting here um you know sometimes there'll be signs up or you know people wear pins on their jackets that sort of thing that can just show that I'm, you know, this, I, we're a safe place. Um, I think that that kind of visual signaling is so helpful, mm-hmm. you know, that if you, because even if you're not entirely comfortable, at least you're sort of sending a signal of I'm trying, we're trying. Like, exactly. 
And I think that's the most important part is to keep working. And, you know, when you, when you, if you realize there's something not working well to, you know, make an effort to identify it and find out what would work best to change it. So, you know, so there have been times where I've asked a question. And I was like, oh, that didn't come out the way I wanted to. So then the next time I know, like, let me try asking it a little bit different way. So if it, mm-hmm. it comes out better and, you know, is it, that's why we call it practicing medicine because we keep working on it. We're, we're not we're not perfect at it. Uh, we can always do better. That makes sense. So we also wanted to go over today STIs. What about STIs would you like to talk about? So I'll, I was kind of thinking I'd just give you guys a little bit of an overview of the different types of STIs and then talking a little bit about prevention and, you know, treatment, that sort of thing. Sure. Um, so kind of... The way I kind of think about it is, you know, we've got, um, so like STIs like HIV is one, obviously a lot of people are very well aware of, um, is a, it can be both uh, bloodborne or sexually transmitted. So, um, you know, common among people who have unprotected sex with partners of unknown status or people who use like IV drugs, accidental needle sticks, that sort of thing. Uh, the nice thing about HIV now is that we have uh, exposure prophylaxis for it. So if I have, you know, a patient who has a partner uh, of unknown status or has a partner who has a HIV positive status, we can actually start on medications to help prevent them from developing HIV and it reduces the, the likelihood very significantly. Wow. Um, and there's also post-exposure prophylaxis. So if somebody does have... really, Yep. So if somebody does have an encounter, they actually can get treatment. It has to be done within just a couple of days, so it can't. People can't wait a long time. But so sort I think, of like a morning after pill, but for HIV. Correct. Wow. Correct. Uh, you know, it would not be something that I would want to be relying on all the time. But if you had a, a potential exposure and you want to make sure that you're protected, you you can do that. There are. Um, but if you if you think you might be at increased risk, so if you have multiple partners, like I said, of unknown status, um, or if you do have a partner that has HIV and you want to decrease the likelihood of, of contracting it, uh, we have what's called pre-exposure prophylaxis or PrEP nowadays. Uh, and so it requires taking a medication daily, and it's not unfortunately just a you know single take at one time and mm-hmm. you're protected before an encounter. But if you're taking it regularly. Uh, you can reduce the likelihood of developing it. Now, honestly, the best way to prevent HIV from spreading is actually to treat everybody who has HIV because once we treat them, the likelihood of transmission goes down. Mm. On the other hand, if you know you don't know how uh, how uh, adherent your partner might be to treatment, you might feel more comfortable doing something for yourself and to to protect yourself. So. I think but that, I can imagine a scenario, too, where someone might feel like, eh, I'm a socks and, or I'm a suspenders and a belt kind of a person. <laughs> Bingo. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so that's, that's you know, kind of great news about HIV, though we don't have a cure for it. We have, um, you know, a lot of exposure prophylaxis and treatment nowadays is excellent. People have, you know, very long fulfilling lives with HIV. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it for most people, it, it, it doesn't. It doesn't cause major health issues or anything like that. It doesn't mean they don't live without, you know, stigma, that sort of thing. But there is, it has improved That's dramatically. That's such a huge change. Yes. I, I, um, 
I became an adult in the late 80s, early 90s, and it was like, oh my God, death sentence. And it yes. was and it was a shift from the fears that I'd had as a early adolescent of like the worst thing that can happen is I can get pregnant. Like, no, nope, you're going to die. Like, mm-hmm. uh-oh, right. okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, so it's yeah. wonderful to hear that it's not a death sentence. Yes, absolutely. Um, another, um, you know, kind of one of the big ones I, I do a lot of treatment, uh, screening and treating for is gonorrhea and chlamydia uh, i kind of always just lump them together because whenever we um like if someone has gonorrhea we always treat them for chlamydia too hmm. they just kind of tend to go together a lot so those ones the the challenges with this one is that you can actually get in multiple places in the body so this mm-hmm. is where one of those you have to kind of tell your doctor what you might need so if somebody called me up and said hey i want screening I probably would do, you know, I can I can do like a urine test for it and they wouldn't even have to come in. But that would only get if there was, you know, penile or, um, you know, kind of vaginal urethral disease. It would not get anal or oral. So if someone has gonorrhea of the throat, I would have to have them come in for a swab. So, you know, kind of the nice thing is I can do some screening without ever having to have somebody walk in the door, which I think can be a comfort to people. They don't have to necessarily come in and explain. They can just say, hey, I want screening. And you know, like, okay, stop by the lab and we'll get it done. Uh, versus, you know, if somebody, if somebody needs maybe testing some like in their throat or their uh, anal area, then, then we do have to have them come in for swapping. Sure. But I think knowing that, that that can occur, so you can ask your doctor for that specific testing. It's not something that's, oh, I think people always think of is to test those areas. Right. And, you know, I, sometimes even myself, I wouldn't think to test those unless someone said, hey, I might specifically need testing there. So, you know, well, and it's so common not to use protection for oral sex. So correct, you might not even think about it. Yeah, you might not. Yep. Yeah, assume. Um, so knowing that the, that that you might need to be tested in other areas if you are, you know, engaging with sexual activities using different organs. So a lot of times, you know, we try to ask people like, "What organs do you use, do you use for sex?" <laughs> you know, because that way we can kind of get an idea um, of who might be at risk for that sort of thing. Um, well, that's an interesting language challenge, too, because I don't know that I would necessarily have think, think of course, my mouth is an organ. Like, <laughs> that, mm-hmm. you know, and, it's just sort of not how maybe the layperson necessarily thinks about it. And I, th- I think that's sometimes where the challenge is, is, you know, when in medicine, we try to be sh- like, sh- try to be very like open. And then it actually makes it harder because the language gets very like confused, confusing yeah, at times, yeah. because mm-hmm. it's like, how do I explain like, well, the reason I... You know, like, I, you know, like, I, I, I want to know, like, what kind of, of sex do you engage in? Kind of that mm. umbrella term sex, not just specifically right. intercourse, right. that sort of thing. And how many people don't think that oral sex is sex or, or yep. you know, yeah, think that I there's think like some loophole. Doesn't, um, we were talking, I think you were alluding to this a little bit earlier, but I feel like the Holton Street people have good specific questions that get at yeah that's um that's what i was referring to when i said that they have like they them pronouns as an option it's uh holton street clinic here in milwaukee wisconsin is purely like a research research based clinic and they do screenings for like 40 bucks so it's really option it's it's a really great option for people who are low income they also have like free saturdays for yeah, only a few, risk. yeah, if you're at high risk for a few appointments every Saturday, um, so there's a lot of really good options for people who are low income, um, and they oh, also maybe don't want to go have these conversations with their totally. regular provider, yeah, but yeah. they still want to be responsible and mm-hmm. know what's going on. And 
And there are other places like that, I believe, in like Chicago and bigger cities. But I do think it's kind of a a rare gem to have that kind of like really awesome, inclusive. And they also, I think they offer prep and things like that for people who are high risk. So yeah, it's just a nice But nice they space. did a good job, in my recollection, of eliciting those kinds of behavior questions in a very just matter of fact. Yeah, yeah. very non-judgmental. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the other infections out there is one called trichomonas. Um, this one's not as probably commonly known by people. Um, more, of, more often, I think we see it causing problems in, in women than in men. Um, but it is, it is something that we can easily pick up with a urine test. We can also pick it up on vaginal swabs, that sort of thing. Sometimes I even get it back on, you know, someone's having their pap smear and actually can get that one back on there. So that that's actually kind of an interesting one. There is this kind of theoretical risk, we've never actually proved it, that it, that one actually can be transmitted um, through objects, um, that it oh. can like might actually be able to survive on objects for a little while. Mm. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know that anyone's ever proved that, but there's kind of like this theoretical risk, I think. And so that might go towards, you know, making sure that, you know, um, people aren't like sharing, you know, any sort of equipment they might be using or yeah. at least making sure that it's clean. Clean it up in between. Yep, exactly. Because that there, there is kind of some theoretical risk of, of that sort of thing, uh, being transmitted. Um, same thing with some of like the, the other, like more like HIV type. What's the, um, what, what are the symptoms or the risks of Trichomonas? Trichomonas. So trichomonas uh, more causes like a vaginal discharge, pain. Um, for men, we don't often see symptoms. It, we, it, I think it can cause a little bit of like uh, inflammation of the urethra, but it's not a particularly common one. Usually, usually we pick it up on a symptomatic female and then test partners. Sure. Um, and then... Uh, one I wanted to just briefly go over is syphilis. So, you know, one thing people don't think about a lot, but it is still pretty common out there. Um, tends to, uh, you know, it, it has like phases that it goes through. Mm. And uh, the treatment kind of depends on what phase you get it in. You might need more intense treatment if they catch it quite late. And that's actually one that can... You know, if you if you go into really late stage, so this is usually like years and years down the line, it actually can cause um, neurological damage, that right. sort of thing. So like it's one blindness? of those. It's like usually like neurological cord problems, okay. that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one of those things. Like a lot of times, we think to screen for it in somebody who might have like um, like a cognitive um, like a dementia type sort of thing. Oh, yeah. um, you know, some of them we always kind of think like, do we need to screen them for syphilis? It's called neurosyphilis. Um, it's it's a blood test to do, so it's a pretty easy test. I, whenever I, I kind of, somebody asks for any sort of STI testing, I send it. Whenever somebody has any one type of STI, I always test for kind of some of the others out there. Yeah. Um, another one is uh, hepatitis B. People don't often think of that one as being a sexually transmitted, but it, it can be. Uh, thankfully, in the United States, it's very rare. Uh, mostly, you know, people we see with it are people who are coming from other countries uh, because we do pretty much universally vaccinate across the country. But there might be some people who maybe somehow did not get vaccinated uh, when they were um, when they were younger. And so I do recommend hepatitis B vaccination for everybody. Uh, it's a series of three shots. It's super easy to do. And well, actually, there's also one you can do with just two shots, but um, 
it's just a really easy way to protect yourself. It is something we can now treat, but it causes liver damage. I think mm, it's just, yeah. it's you know, when you have the option to prevent a disease, I think that's just the best way to go. Well, and I've also heard that even more than HIV, hepatitis can live on a surface for an extended period of time. Correct. The So actually, you know, with like, we, we often talk about it in the terms of like needle sticks. So like someone taught me it's kind of like this rule of threes. So like if you get if you get stabbed with a needle for HIV, it's like you have a 0.3% chance of having it um, transfer. It's hepatitis C. It's like a 3% and then it's like 30% of it's hep B. So oh. like some of them are actually very likely to be transmitted compared to some of those. I might be a little off on the numbers, but, it, you know, so some of them are, are much more easily transmitted than yeah. others. So wow. just, you know, being conscious of that, um, you know, if, if there's ever any like blood, making sure that gets cleaned up right. so that no one else can get you know, um, infected or anything like that. Well, and I was reading this based on like, um, kink play spaces where blood might be, um, spilled or, or, you know, um, uh, in a, a kink space, there was a lot of talk about cleaning up because of HIV. And this person was like, actually, that's not really what you have to worry about. Like you need to worry about hepatitis. Like this can, um, you really need to be careful and clean up after yourself. Hepatitis C is definitely a much a bigger issue Mm -hmm. Uh, like i said hepatitis b is rare in our in our country that being said if we have individuals coming from another country they they could potentially have that so that's always something to consider um hepatitis c though we we don't have vaccination for it is now treatable thankfully um i think most forms can be treated uh which is really awesome um thinking like probably like a decade ago, we didn't have any treatment for it. So it's really amazing that we do have a way to to cure that now. Um, That one is more blood transference than, Mm -hmm. you know, sexual transference, that sort of thing. But definitely something to be considering if people are in a situation where there might be blood involved. Well, and speaking of treatment, most treatments for STIs are like antibiotics, right? Like a pretty simple, straightforward week or two days of antibiotics, De- right? Depends on the... It, sure, it, it like really HIV depends. isn't, obviously. Yeah, but yeah. HIV not, um, hepatitis is, you know, those are kind of longer treatments, uh, several weeks of treatment, um, you know, things like trichomonas, uh, gonorrhea, chlamydia, a lot of times we can treat them in a single dose, which is nice, no, because, nice. you know, a lot of times we worry about people being able to follow through with the treatment, so mm-hmm. just being able to get that single... Um, treatment out. I will say one thing is, you know, Wisconsin is a state that has um, expedited partner therapy. So if you, so this is only really, really only use this for like trichomonas or chlamydia. But if I have a a patient who gets diagnosed with one of those, I can actually call in scripts for partners into the pharmacy under expedited partner therapy. And so they can either give me the names of their partner and I can call it in. I just have to tell the pharmacy this is expedited partner therapy. They have some information they have to provide to the person. But legally, I can provide care for somebody who is a partner of one of my patients so that we can get people treatment because it's become such such a big deal of like getting people treatment. or, or if they don't want to provide any names, they can just say, I can call it under the patient's name and just say partner therapy for them. And then their partner can go in and, and pick up the therapy. So I've heard of people taking like antibiotics even before the test result came back because they were like, well, I was exposed. If, yeah, so, if you have a known exposure, we, yeah. we oftentimes will treat 
without even in testing. A test. Oh, yeah, okay. you can even, I mean, sometimes we'll still do the test to confirm, but a lot of times I'll just go ahead and treat if somebody has a known exposure. or And then sometimes we'll like test later, just make sure that they've, you know, cured the disease. Most important thing is with these sexually transmitted diseases, especially the ones where we can treat them pretty quickly, is that you want to make sure that your partner gets treated before resuming sexual activity with them. Because mm-hmm. you can, if you get treated and they don't, you can get the in, right. disease back, back and, and they can pass it back and forth. Seems Correct. Like a bad idea. Yeah. 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 Um, so we haven't really talked about HPV at all. Yeah, sexually, that's my next one. I was going <laughs> to say. So HP, HPV is a little, is kind of an interesting one. Um, it's a virus. Uh, what's interesting about it is it, it can kind of lie dormant. Um, really, you know, in the last, in, in my time as, you know, kind of training through medical school residency you know, and then into my job, um, we've seen a lot of changes in how we approach cervical cancer screening, that sort of thing. Um, So what we really know nowadays is the vast majority of uh, HPV, or vast majority of cervical cancer is caused by HPV virus. There are a few other causes out there, but obviously I'm not going to touch on those. Um, About 70% are caused by two different strains of the virus. That's strains 16 and 18. And then the next twenty, the next twenty percent is caused by an additional five strains. So we actually have vaccines out there that can cover against about ninety percent of the strains that cause cervical cancer. These are also ones that can cause um, anal cancer, and there are oral cancers that have been linked to them as well. So we we have vaccination now that can definitely protect people against them. And the FDA actually just expanded coverage for the or expanded the recommended age for that up to age 45 oh wow so people yeah, can now, I know it was like 22 when it, I was yeah it's like college. 20 yeah, yeah. And 26 recently okay. um so now people can get it up through age 45 now will insurance necessarily pick up the cost of that sometimes you know they say this is approved but then insurance doesn't necessarily want to pay for it mm. um but if people if that's something important they might say that hey this is worth you know the the price of it, that sort of thing, and, and say, this is important to me. Um, so if, if you know, someone hasn't been vaccinated against HPV, I do recommend it's, you know, protects against um, the, the one What's we have. What's the cor- logic of not, of only going to 45? For, I don't know that they've tested beyond that. <laughs> um, I know the logic back in the day, they would always say like up to 22, because after that, you probably have it. Like they were like uh, a lot of yeah so so we know that the tricky thing with HPV so it's a it's a virus and a lot of people will clear the virus on their own so if some so especially a lot of younger women which is why we now don't do Pap smears prior to age twenty one because most women under age twenty one will clear the virus all on their own and what was happening is that we were going in and we were testing we were finding you know, problems, we were doing all these procedures, and then we were leaving, you know, people scarring on their cervix, cervical insufficiency, which could complicate pregnancies down the line. So the, you know, what was what was determined was that if we push it back to age 21, that's when we start to see more people who aren't clearing the virus. And so now we have more of a, if there's something abnormal, we repeat it, see if it continues to stay abnormal. If it's a really high risk, we go ahead right away with, you know, checking a little, you know, doing what's called a colposcopy where they kind of do a more advanced testing. But if it's just, you know, if we see something that's a little bit abnormal, a lot of times we'll just monitor it and see if it goes away on its own so that we're not doing excess testing and treatment in women who don't need it. 
as someone who has had the great pleasure of a colposcopy and <laughs> am over 45, <laughs> I have a lot of opinions, but a lot of questions, I guess, is mm -hmm. more, more of an accurate description about it. You know, it, it feels like something that would be so useful and a little like, really? You don't think that's going to be good for me? But why not? <laughs> and I'm not obviously directing yeah, it to no, you. Absolutely. But, you, know. The, you know, one of the, I mean, one of the challenges that you'll see in medicine is that, you know, often we'll say like, you know, this is recommended for, for, you know, a certain age. So for example, mammograms, there's really no recommendation after age 75. Does that mean women after 75 don't get breast cancer? No, it's just, we don't have enough data to mm -hmm. show that there's a lot of benefit from it. So, mm -hmm. you know, all these things end up being, you know, kind of a conversation. You know, could people over 45 get benefit? Probably. Um, you know, if, if it's something you've never been exposed to before, there's probably still some benefit. You know, I obviously if the FDA says it's only we're only going to approve it up to this age, that's kind of what they say. Right. Um, you know, there is off-label use of things, so we can technically do it. Uh, again, insurance definitely would not cover an right, off-label right. use of something like that. <laughs> but um, yeah. Unfortunately, we are sometimes just limited. Off-label is such a funny thing. Uh, yeah. Both of my children were conceived on letrozole, <laughs> which is, you know, commonly used off-label in fertility treatment, mm -hmm. but it's a cancer treatment drug. So, you know, it's yep. interesting how all of these things work. Yep. Um, one thing about HPV2, though, is um, because it also can cause anal cancer, um, it is, we actually are able to do anal pap testing. So if somebody's at particularly high risk, at this point in time, we don't have, like, general recommendations for, like, screening people. Um, people who are at particularly high risk, we we can do screening in. I know, like, HIV population is one population uh, that they tend to do more aggressive screening, both cervical and anal screening. Um, has not been something that's been really, you know, I think they've really established really good guidelines of when to do it and when not to, but it is something that if somebody thinks that they might be at high risk for that, that they could talk to their doctor about and there's something that's able to be done. We don't have any way of screening for HPV of the throat at this point or mouth or throat, but it, it is associated with, um, you know, oral cancers, that sure, sort of thing. Yeah. So it is something, make sure you're seeing your dentist for oral cancer screening, that sort of thing. Oh, I never thought about seeing a dentist for that. That's yep. interesting. Hmm. So, yeah, dentists do an oral cancer screen whenever. Obviously, they can't see beyond the back of the throat, but sure. they, you know, look uh, look at the tongue, the kind of all around the mouth, that sort of thing. So, yeah, makes oh. sense. Yeah, it does make sense. <laughs> um, a couple other STDs, uh, like herpes. A lot of people have herpes or have been exposed to herpes. Um, you know, kind of the challenge with that one is. Sometimes people will just suddenly have an outbreak and we can't tell you if it's something you've had for a long time and you just suddenly got the symptoms from yeah. it or if it's a new exposure. Um, there are medications to help reduce the likelihood of passing it on to partners and to reduce outbreaks so, uh, and to shorten outbreaks when you get them. So definitely seeing your doctor about that. Um, I'd say anytime you see like lesions, so like little bumps or, you know, um, any Blister. sort of skin change, yeah, yeah mm -hmm. you need to get checked out. Sure. You know, like I said, some testing we can do over the phone, but if there's something that's like a skin finding, you probably should go get that checked out. For example, another one that oftentimes people don't think of being as a sexually transmitted infection is something called molluscum contagiosum. They're the water warts. And so sometimes, you know, kids will pick them up at like water parks, that sort of thing. But it also, a lot of times, like on the abdominal area, people can pass them back and forth with their sexual partners. Hmm. So, Yeah, and I feel like with... With herpes, if you get 
one strain, right? Herpes simplex one, which is oral, you could test positive for herpes simplex two or, um, or so, you, you test positive for the antibodies or something. So, so, so there, so we can test specifically for herpes simplex one and herpes simplex two. Um, it, uh, traditionally they're associated with one is with oral and two is genital. Mm-hmm. Um, that has changed a lot. Right. Cause they can be yeah, both because, places. Yeah. Yeah. Again, going back to what organs do you have sex with? <laughs> right, yes. And so you, you can really get any, you know, else anywhere. Um, you know, I've heard case reports of people who might be, you know, having, um, you know, actually, um, like herpes of the armpit if they're using like an armpit for sexual practices, that sort of thing. So it really can kind of happen. It can really kind of happen anywhere on the body. Interesting. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I think kind of when it comes to, you know, sexually transmitted infections, you know, getting screening is very important. Um, if you are, if, you know, if you, if you could potentially be getting exposed, getting some sort of regular screening, you know, talking with your doctor about what interval might be the best to do that. Um, you know, one, one way to pr- uh, protect against, you know, uh, sexually transmitted infections is if you're only sexually active with, you know, partners who have no sexually transmitted infections and they're only sexually active with those, you're not going to get anything. So that's why, like, you know, like the polycules and the poly community can actually be really safe for that sort of thing because if you're only sexually active with those people and no one has an STD, then nothing's going to get transmitted back and forth. Now, you know, obviously people can always have relationships outside of, you know, what are known and consensual, uh, known, you know, kind of consensual relations, that sort of thing. I generally ask my patients, uh, you know, at their yearly exam, do they want any STD screening, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And so that way, you know, they don't have to necessarily tell me anything. If they just say, yep, I want to be screened, I'll screen them. And, you know, you know, because you, you, it's kind of one of those things you never know what your partners are doing exactly. And yeah. so... Right. Well, and like you said, herpes, you may not have symptoms for a long time and not yep. know that you were Ever infected. exposed, yep. Yeah. And people get... And often, I feel like people are exposed to herpes when they're children. So... And they yep. might not have a, a breakout for 20 years. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. You know, um, especially lesions around the mouth can mm-hmm. be can be very common that people can get at a young age and then... You know, those getting transmitted around those. And not sexually. Yeah. Sharing sodas. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, um, obviously, if you do have, you know, partners who um, you don't know about their STD status, that sort of thing, using barrier methods to protect yourself is the most important. So, um, condoms and like, you know, like the dental dams, that sort of thing. I think there's a more technical term for the... the At at work, we call them dental dams. dams. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, but that, those are really the best thing to help protect against STDs. Uh, so, I don't know if you had any other questions about STIs or I don't STDs. I think so. Or... I think I asked my questions along the way. Okay. Um, we also wanted to talk a little bit about contraceptives today, because if you don't use any kind of contraceptive, you get that ultimate STI, which is a child <laughs> or a pregnancy <laughs> of some kind. So, um, so I like to say that's that's the one that it's um it's 18 years to life so you really got to be careful unless you want that then it's fine um so what about contraceptives yeah so anybody who has a you know intact vagina uterus fallopian tubes ovaries who is receiving um intercourse from a partner who has 
penis and sperm is potentially at risk. So it doesn't necessarily have to be a woman. We also want to think about uh, some of our transgendered individuals who might still have intact organs could potentially be at risk. Um, and actually, some of the, the hormones that people use in the transition period, those are not often adequate for contraception. So it can those, it can help with like causing sterility sometimes or infertility, right? Yes, but, but it's, it's it's not, not a contraception. Yeah, yeah, that makes yeah. Sense. So yeah. is there something decreased probability? <laughs> yeah, probably. But but I would say that you know we we always joke in any time um, somebody is not using you know a any form of contraception, we always joke that in the medical community that they're trying to get pregnant. That's the way we think about it. (laughs) So um, that being said, pregnancy is not always necessarily, we don't always want to think of pregnancy as a negative thing. I think sometimes that gets kind of drilled into us that pregnancy is necessarily a negative thing. But I take the approach of what, you know, what do people want as their goal regarding pregnancy? So if I have a patient who says, well, if I get pregnant, I get pregnant, it's no big deal. Then that's a very different conversation that I have (laughs) than, a patient who says, I can't get pregnant. Mm-hmm. And a really different conversation, too, than somebody who's trying to get pregnant. I mean, I think exactly. the shocking thing to me when I was trying to get pregnant was like, wait a minute, I grew, I spent the last 20 years thinking that this was going to happen like in 15 seconds. Right. And- Every single time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I did the same thing where I was like, you can only get pregnant like four days out of the month? Yeah. Why was I so worried? And I mean, rightfully paranoid but also yeah, right what yeah. like, <laughs> this, wait, this is, is so much harder yeah. than i thought it was yeah. gonna be it, it's often it's often a big transition from we spend so much time trying not to get pregnant and then when we do want to get pregnant then usually by then we've put it off for a while and now our fertility is starting to go down that it actually becomes a lot harder to get pregnant right. so it, it is you know kind of a, a real challenge that we we a lot of times we end up facing but um but on the preventing pregnancy yeah side, absolutely this, this so is, It'd so, be a whole different conversation of in absolutely. your polycule, how do you get people pregnant? <laughs> I don't think we're prepared for that one yet. I think I think the most important thing is, um, you know, up until the age of menopause, you could potentially become pregnant. Mm-hmm. So um, we want to think about actually a lot of times women in their late 40s are a population that have a high rate of unintended pregnancy because they kind of forget that, oh, I could still potentially become pregnant. Um, You know, I think a lot of times, you know. Well, when you look at the fertility statistics, it's like, yeah, that window drops down to like 3% at 42. I'm fine. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, and, you know, another another population I always like to just, you know, make sure that they understand is people who maybe have had lifelong infertility with their Mm -hmm. partner, especially if it's not like of a known, like if we know that exactly why they have infertility, you know, we can say, but if somebody's just was just for whatever reason, they just were not able to get pregnant um you know a lot of times just that infertility is just a a a chance game and so you know over enough time it can happen Mm -hmm. and so making sure that people understand that that's still a potential and uh, that you know if that's what they want then you know that's fine but if if they're now have reached a point in their life that say Ugh, and actually, now I don't really want to necessarily have a kid at this age. Then we want to make sure we're, we're doing something to protect against that. Um, and there's a lot of different types of, of birth control. Um, you know, the U.S., most uh, I think the pill becomes kind of one of the most common ones here. But actually, if you look outside the United States, uh, uh, intrauterine devices are one of the most common ways against the protect against pregnancy. As a healthcare provider, they're my favorite because <laughs> we put them in. And they stay in place for years, yeah. and they require no effort on the part of the patient, which, you know, when I when I deal with people who have difficulty adhering to treatment regimens and everything like that, anything that takes effort off of the patient is something I prefer. 
The thing about, so I, I have an IUD, mm-hmm. I have my second IUD. And when I got my first IUD, I spent probably the first 10 months thinking, fuck this thing, I'm getting rid of it tomorrow. Mm. Because I was one of the people who just had near constant bleeding. Not mm-hmm. a lot, but just enough to be like completely irritating yep. for nearly a year. And then it stopped. It, and it, it stopped completely. And, you know, now if I have days like that five times a year, that feels like a lot. Yeah. <laughs> it, you know, definitely the with the all the different IUDs out there. So there's the, you know, progesterone-containing IUDs. So they use a medication. They thin out the lining of the uh, uterus. Um, they, you know, also increase the cervical mucus so that that sperm actually can't get in there. So it doesn't stop ovulation, um, but it uh, basically prevents sperm from even getting into the, the fallopian tubes to fertilize an egg. So um, very highly effective. You kind of put them in there, forget about it. But yeah, sometimes sometimes it can take a while for to figure out how your body is going to respond with that bleeding profile. A lot of times we say by about six months, we kind of know what's going to happen. But, you know, sometimes it can be a little bit longer. Um, the the IUDs are nice because uh, with the progesterone-only containing ones, a, a lot of women, about 60% or so, actually go on and have no menstrual periods whatsoever, yeah. which can be kind of nice. There are also non-hormone-containing IUDs. So there's a, a copper IUD out there, um, which is really nice for someone if they want to avoid hormones. Um, that one can have a little... Like kind of that first six months can be a lot heavier menstrual periods. So a lot of times if someone already has very heavy periods where they're maybe getting anemic or something, might not be my first choice unless it's something that they're really kind of committed to doing. Um, the so, nice thing about the copper, though, is that it lasts a lot longer. Yeah, it's, it's, so, it's yeah. 10 years, and I, yeah. I bet you it could probably even last longer. But 12 now. Yeah, yeah because they, um, I got a copper AUD, and they told me, they gave me a little card that said, like, come back and see us in, like, 2031 or something yeah. like that. And I was like, what? That doesn't even sound like a real date. <laughs> like, that's insane. Uh, it was very, it was really cool. But yeah, and I would definitely say that things change for, like, three or four months. And I totally expected it. And I was like, I hope this doesn't continue forever. But if it does, you know, we'll we'll figure it out. Uh, and then I went back to normal. Yeah, yeah and so. I think I think a lot of times, yeah, for, for about six months, things are still problematic. I mean, expect six months of menstrual period, you know, not acting the way you expect it to, and then after six months, it's still really problematic. Talk to your doctor and see if you know we should give it more time, or if maybe we just need to try something different. Um, you know, there's there's different different things yeah. that can happen and so not having hormones was really important to me so yeah. you know because having been on the pill different forms of the pill throughout my entire 20s and having such crazy mood swings sometimes borderline on depression episodes and they always were related to like oh i was on the pill at that point or oh i was just getting off the pill at that point i it was really important to me to have something that was not um that yeah. did not have hormones yeah and yeah some people that that is very important other people find that having hormone actually makes those better so true you know yeah. and and you know kind of with the um iud's that's kind of like that nice level plateau of hormone there's also uh, an implantable that goes in the arm before um, we move on from iud's i think the yeah. other thing is um 
not only the copper ones have a fairly extended life, but they've also increased the amount of time that they leave. In, they recommend leaving in. True. Yeah. It's like when I first got mine, they said, come back in five years, which also seemed like, what? How can I like, <laughs> is that for real? And when I went back five years later, they're like, oh, no, it's seven years. Yeah. I was like, what are you talking they're, about? They're expand- <laughs> so they're expanding the time period. And, and actually, you know, they, they've shown that like people who, you know, kind of went out past the, the five year date were protected for quite a while afterwards um you know obviously the they've picked dates to pull it out well before it runs out of you know medication so it can Mm -hmm. be effective long after the expiration date um you know so usually within a couple months afterwards it's we don't really do anything differently you know i think in the united states we don't use a lot of IUDs. Um, and one of that, one of the reasons for that is actually kind of a, a bad history that we have here in the United States and probably would have been, you know, kind of my mom, you know, mom's era was there my was a, mom had the Delcon shield was the one that was the problematic one. Mm-hmm. And that one actually caused a lot of, um, public inflammatory disease and that sort oh. of, and had some, you know, ended up leading to like some fertility issues for people, that sort of thing. So it was a, it was a really bad one. Um, and so I think kind of as a result that, you know, a lot of people across our country just kind of started using the pill. And then, you know, if that's what your mom used, that's what you're going to use. So, you know, it was it's not something that's like, oh, this is this really nice, very effective way to prevent pregnancy. So I, I do, like I said, I do, as a healthcare provider, I do like the implantable ones because it takes a lot of um, just effort off of, you know, my, my patient's hands. That being said, you know, if someone says, well, within the next year, I might want to get pregnant. That's probably not the time to put a a long-term one. in. you know, (laughs) we, I tend to see anything over a year is probably a a good time to consider it, but if it's going to be less than a year, then, then I would recommend probably not using a implantable device. One other thing I was going to say about IUDs is, you know, there was, um, a, a trial that did out in Denver where they actually were giving out IUDs and mostly among kind of like their teen and you know young 20 age population and with the use of IUDs they dropped their unintended pregnancy rate by like over 15 percent and their abortion rate went down by like over well over 15 percent as well so they're really effective at preventing pregnancy Um, obviously there are other forms out there for hormonal there's pills patches there's a ring, um, you, there's injectable, kind of all of those are, are beneficial in certain, you know, categories of people. So if someone says, I want something that, you know, I don't have to, you know, take a pill or something like that, mm-hmm. but, you know, we have other options. So there's a lot of different options we can really tailor to what the person needs. And then there are also kind of some of those barrier methods out there. Um, again, condoms, they're effective, um, but not as effective as some of the hormonal ones. So it really depends on what people's desire for pregnancy are there's also things like the um like cervical caps and uh that sort of thing Do people still use diaphragms at all does anybody use a diaphragm there are some <laughs> i you know i have to send them over to gynecology to get fitted for them so Weird. i don't i don't know that i have anyone in my population right now that i know of that uses them i but... had one as a teenager that's yeah. that's how, uh, how old i am is i had I've a never seen as a teenager. one I've, li- I've literally <laughs> never seen one in real life like that's interesting um, there are some, you know, there are some advantages to that kind of thing, but it, it again also requires yeah. some like thinking ahead, and then you got to leave it in for a while afterwards, that mm-hmm. sort of thing. And so, um, sometimes that can make spontaneity difficult for people. Sure. Yeah. So. Right. Well, and I don't have one now, but you know, yeah, it's just funny to think about the way we, th- the way that we think about these things changing because I wasn't really worried about STDs, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. you know, 
it seemed like a great choice of like, I don't Absolutely. have sex very much and I'm Absolutely. not worried about STDs. So, okay then. And, and I didn't want to get involved with taking hormones because. Yep. And I think, I think all of it goes back to why you need to be, you know, upfront and open with your doctor about this so they can kind of figure out what's going to be best for you because, you know, I, I know what all the guidelines say. I know kind of what's, you know, kind of like here's, you know, ultimately these things we know to be really good for you. I don't know what's right for my individual patients. So only they can tell me what's right for them. So a lot of times, you know, especially if there might be a little bit of a conflict among guidelines, I say, okay, so here are your options, you know, and these are all really good options for you. So what's what's best for you? Mm-hmm. And so being open with your doctor can really help you know, encourage that dialogue. I very much think that my patients are a big driver of their health care, that they are equal partner in making these decisions. And, you know, I, I don't I don't want to assume that I know what's best for my patient. So, you know, knowing more information about my patients and, you know, what's important to them helps me provide them with better options. That makes sense. Yeah. Well, thank you for agreeing Absolutely. to be interviewed. We really appreciate it. It's been a super informative yeah, yeah. episode. It's going to be a long episode, but I think it's going to be really uh, a good one to be able to link to people and be like, hey, yeah. want to know more about STIs? Want to know more about contraceptives? Like, yeah. So, yes, thank you so much for being yep. here. Thank you. Awesome. And that is it from us at Polyamory Uncensored. We have been Lindsay Miller and Katie Williams. We'd like to thank podcast husband Rob for being our sound engineer. And thank you, Lindsay, for editing this podcast so that we sound smart. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Polyamory Uncensored. Contact us at polyamoryuncensored at gmail.com if you have a listener question or a comment. And if you'd like to support us at all, you can send us a monthly contribution at anchor.fm slash polyamoryuncensored and simply click on the support this podcast button. If you'd like to support the podcast with a one-time contribution, we've set up a PayPal link to make it super easy. Thank you for your support in any amount at paypal.me slash polyamoryuncensored. We hope you've enjoyed this episode and remember, we love you. Bye.